This summer we're going to go through a series, and I don't know where it's going to go, to be honest, <laughs> but we're going to start a series that I've entitled, Yes, Jesus Loves Me, Relying on the Love of God. And this morning I just want to set the table for where I believe God is taking us in exploring the love of God. And so this morning I want to uh, explain kind of the rationale behind uh, this idea of exploring and delving into the fact that God loves us. And I want you to know that basically this is done with selfish motives. Because I want to spend a summer uh, being soaked in the love of God. And I don't think anybody would object to that. See, this past season of ministry, um, we've been challenged. We are challenged by the book of Acts. It's a challenging narrative. We were challenged by Christ's words to the disciples before he ascended, that he wanted them to be witnesses throughout the world. We were challenged by their courage, the courage of the apostles to be faithful, even in the face of persecution. Think of Stephen, the first martyr, who was willing to die because of his faith in Jesus Christ. We were challenged to the call to die to self and to be transformed into the person or likeness of Jesus Christ. And we were challenged to take on difficult issues in a Christ-like way, in a loving way. I think of the issue of what are the Gentiles to do with Judaism now that they've come into the fulfillment of Judaism, Christianity? What to do about issues and traditions? And we're challenged by the wisdom that was shown. So it's been a challenging study, and, and it's been a year-long challenge. But you can get off kilter with challenge. You can get off-center. You see, discipline and, and sacrifice, <clears throat> selflessness, working to correct oneself, working to fulfill a mission, if it's done for those reasons alone, sacrifice and discipline, correction, it actually can be a bad thing. But self-discipline and correction and, 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 and working at and trying to um, accomplish and being sacrificial is only good if there's some pure and noble motivation. 
I think of folks who end up with anorexia, who in some strange way take pleasure from denial. Denying themselves food and somehow getting some reward for that. I think that we don't want to be like that. We don't, we don't want to be people that are disciplined and sacrificial and, and working on the mission. Because there's some value in that alone. In a sense, it's, it's masochistic. <laughs> To just hunker down and work at if there isn't some noble and pure and worthy motivation. And so this summer we're going to be reminded of the reason why we want to follow in the footsteps of the apostles. The reasons why we want to be sacrificial. We want to be disciplined. We want to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. This morning, I want to start us in a strange place. <laughs> We're going to Mount Sinai. We're going to that time when Moses was given the law, most notably the Ten Commandments. Let me just remind you of the context here. God has done an amazing thing. He has delivered Israel from slavery. And they've come out into a desert. And the Israelites have come to the foot of Mount Sinai. And Moses is called by God to go up to meet with God. And God is going to meet with Moses and give him the law, the rules, the regulations, the sacrifices that they're going to need to make if they're going to be a holy nation and it's going to go well for them in the new land. While Moses is up talking with God. Israel gets cold feet down on the desert. And they start to think to themselves, where has this Moses gone? Maybe this is not a good idea. Would we not have been better to stay back in Egypt? At least we knew where our meals came from. We knew our future. There was stability. There was certainty. And they turned to Aaron, and, and, and Aaron was a brother to Moses. And he, he said to him, they said to him, We would be better off back in Egypt. And Aaron decided to make an idol. And he made a, a, an idol out of the gold that they had been given as they left Egypt. 
And that idol was made in the shape of a calf. And the Israelites began to worship it. And they said that they were worshiping it because it represented the gods that had brought them out of Egypt. Moses came down and witnessed this going on. He'd been in the presence of the Holy God, and he came down into the desert of sin. The darkness of sin. And in anger, he took the tablets with the Ten Commandments and he threw them down and he broke them. That's the context for our scripture this morning. I'm reading from Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones. I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up on Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. I was struck when I was reading this. (laughs) How sad it is that the first tablets were inscribed by the finger of God. (laughs) The second were just hard work. Poor old Moses had to chisel out the the Ten Commandments. Very sad. So Moses chiseled out the two stone tablets like the first ones went up to Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshiped Lord. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us up as your inheritance. Then the Lord said, I am making a covenant with you before all your people. I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people will live among... uh, you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites and the Canaanites and all of the ites. And be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you're going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down the altars, smash the sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. So after the fall of Israel in the desert, the creation of a golden calf 
the worship of that calf as though it represented the gods who had brought Israel out of bondage. God says, I'm willing to make a covenant with you. Moses initiated it by saying, forgive us. And God said, I'll make a covenant with you. And in this account, we have God presenting a challenge to Israel. If you want to experience the blessings of being a holy people, you're going to have to be disciplined. You're going to have to be sacrificial. You're, you're going to have to deny your personal uh, desires, your natural feelings, your natural impulses, which were on display clearly in the desert. You're going to have to do that. If you want to do well in the new land, if you want to prosper, if you want to be a holy nation, if you want to be an example, if you want to be a light to all the nations, it's going to take discipline and sacrifice. I don't know if you remember, because uh, that generation, <laughs> after being presented with this such, such a gracious opportunity to be reinstated, actually ended up after a second rejection of God, dying in the desert. But before the people of Israel went into the land of Canaan, the second time they were, they were, they were on the edge of the land of Canaan, the land of promise, when they came to the land of promise, Moses spoke to them again and presented God's challenge. And this time he put it in, the, in terms of blessings and a curse. <laughs> he said, if, if you do what I'm asking you to do, you'll be blessed. But if you rebel and do the things I'm telling you not to do, you're going to be cursed. Is God being unreasonable? Is God being masochistic? Aha, I've got them under my thumb. I can make them do things that they don't want to do, things that don't come naturally to them. Is that what God is doing here? What motivates an athlete to follow the instruction of a coach who they know is going to make them suffer? What motivates an athlete to follow the instruction of a coach who's going to make them suffer? Well, obviously, because there is a higher goal. There is a noble purpose in following that coach. They know that if they're disciplined, disciplined and sacrificial and they deny self, they're going to achieve great athletic things. But there's a piece here that we have to remember, and which we're going to remember all summer long. And that is that that athlete has to trust that that coach is not a masochist. 
They have to remember that that coach is not taking delight in their suffering. But that coach has their best interest in mind and knows exactly what he or she is doing to help that athlete achieve great things. This is why I believe while God is establishing the covenant with Moses, he makes sure that Moses understands who he is. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. I am laying down the law, but don't forget who I am and why I'm doing it. And so this summer, having spent a season being challenged by the book of Acts, I feel that we could run the error of, of being a little off kilter. And I want to make sure that we balance the ledger, if you will, by dwelling on the fact that God's challenges flow out of the fact that God is trustworthy and he is love. And he knows what's best for us. And though we're faced with the challenges of what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ in a wicked culture, we know the challenges. We know that we're in good hands if we listen to a loving and compassionate God. Judy said it, God is love. You know, we, we hear the term personification. And, and we, you know, we, we think of a person personifying a certain trait or something. It's sort of like when you think of Einstein, you just think of genius. He personifies genius. Mother Teresa, she, she personifies compassion. Uh, Hitler personifies evil. Uh, Jackie Onassis, kind of a crush on her. I got I a bit. She's classy. Right? She just personifies class, style, beautiful. But when John writes about God being love, it goes far beyond personification. God is the author. He is the essence. He is the absolute. Example of love. He is love. First John 4.16 is what Judy was quoting. God is love. 
The Apostle Paul writes how we can know this. He writes in Romans 5, 7 to 8, Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even though we rejected him, just like the Israelites, while God was up with Moses, just like the Israelites in the desert, rejected him, ascribed what God had miraculously done to pagan idols. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Even though we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. We find further evidence of God's love for us in Ephesians. Where Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in, in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will. You are chosen. You are a sinner. You have alienated God. You are an enemy of God, and yet he chose you. You. And this is important. You. Don't forget that. It's not humanity. It's easy to get hung up on globalization here. Oh, yes, God loves the world. But does he love me? God chose you before the creation of the world. God chose you. Now, some here are going to have no problem accepting that. What's there not to love, right? <laughs> oh, I wish I had your self-confidence. But others of us will have a hard time accepting this truth. <clears throat> we really don't understand what God sees in us. So, if this is true, then... Why do we have a hard time accepting it? If God loves us and God shows us, <clears throat> even though we are the way we are, why do we have a hard time accepting it? And, and quite frankly, I'm overstating it, Like I know that we all struggle with this somewhat. I think that there's a lot of reasons for this. Probably as many reasons as there are doubters of the love of God for them. But to generalize, I'm going to say it this way, that many of us are not convinced of God's love for us because it's unnatural to us. It is foreign to us. 
And we project onto God or ascribe to God our broken natural experiences of love. Let me explain. Many of us have been hurt by those claiming to love us. But I thought he loved me. And he did this, that, and the other. Many of us have experienced conditional love with all of its caveats. You are loved if you do this or you are that. Many of us see ourselves as unlovable because we've done creepy, nasty, mean things. And we project this bad experience that we've had with love. In other words, we have not experienced real love. And so we project all of our bad experiences onto God and say he can't possibly be trustworthy. His love must be conditional. His love is not big enough to include me. I started off this morning suggesting that our summer series was motivated by self. And those of you who know me, my spiritual advisors, those who come to a Bible study, attend regularly, you know that, like Henry now, and I, I just so appreciate what, that was just so inspired by God, Judy. I, I know the trap that Nowen writes about. People that know me know that I struggle with the appropriation of God's love for myself. And I know the reasons why. <laughs> but I need to do something about it. And there are times when I get it, and there are other times when I don't. And I'm so hoping that this summer will help me and you if this is an issue for you. And if it isn't an issue for you, you're just going to, you're just going to love being reminded of how special you are. But for those of us who struggle with this, I'm really hoping that by, by some time through the course of this summer, what Judy was talking about, what Nowen was talking about, becomes real for you. That you embrace for yourself that Jesus loves you. John Piper, uh, while I was doing research, I don't know, it just it's remarkable how much John Piper um, He's the guy from Desiring God who wrote books and was a pastor. He's just a really godly guy you can count on. There's my endorsement. Uh, he popped up, like he does quite often, when I need help. He calls this whole thing assurance. Assurance of God's love for you. Assurance that, that you are his child. That you are special to him. 
And he says that there's two ways to pursue assurance. I'm going to give you the first one. Now, there are two ways to pursue assurance, he says. One is by examining ourselves and seeing the evidence that the dominion of sin has broken and that we have a new desire and disciplines. This is what Peter meant when he said, Therefore, brethren, be the more zealous to confirm your call and election. In other words, just look at yourself and see the proof that God loves you. Remember the things that you've experienced where you've experienced the love of God. But John Piper recognizes that some of us are even worse off than that. And that won't work. And so he says this, which I think is godly counsel and counsel that I think is probably framing why we're going to spend the summer dwelling on the love of God. But there is another way to pursue assurance. For people who are given to excessive self-examination and doubt, there's surely the more hopeful path. The book of Hebrews puts it very simply this, like this. Consider Jesus. Look to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. In other words, do not dwell on yourself. Dwell on what God has done in Jesus Christ. I think of it this way. You have to come to the place that the fact that you struggle with God loving you is your problem. It's got nothing to do with God. God's like gravity. I actually got one of the highest grades in physics in my class. And to this day, I cannot figure out how that happened. <laughs> I am clueless with physics. I don't get it. I can deny that gravity exists. I can, you know, say, I don't get it. How can that be? I can be so stupid as to test it. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is that gravity exists. The fact of the matter is that God loves you. You personally. <coughs> Not the world. You. Joanna, God loves you. Thank you. you can. Mark, God loves you. Lord, God loves you. That is as true as gravity. But you know what is true also? Many of us spend our lives constructing anti-gravity rooms. <coughs> It's true. He can't love me. I'm this, that, and the other. I've done this, that, and the other. And we build our little modules, and we step into them, and we float around and say, see, God doesn't love us. There is no gravity. Gravity exists. God's love for you exists. So if you don't want to believe it, that's your problem. <laughs> it's not on him. He's done everything possible to prove his love to you. He died. He took your place. 
He died for you. So why is this so important? Why would we spend the summer? I want to go back to the subtext of the title of the series. Yes, Jesus loves me. Relying on the love of God. John wrote in 1 John 4, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit, and, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God, or the love God has for us. I want us all to get to that place where we rely We rely. You don't want to live a day without the knowledge of God's love for you. Your world would end without God's love for you. I want to rely on the love of God. This is what the apostles did, John being one of them. Why did they consider the challenges why did they embrace the challenges that Christ gave them as being these new guys with this new truth in a hostile environment? Because they relied on the love of God for them. They knew that if they did what the coach said or the trainer said, that it would be good for them. And they knew that the coach was good. And that he was working out the good for them in all things. It's the same for us. Take the lessons of the past year, the challenges. The challenge to be disciplined, to be sacrificial. The challenge to be like Christ in a corrupt world. Take that challenge and do the things that you know God wants you to do. But don't do it as a masochist because you take pleasure from denial. Do it because you know that it will be good for you and the one who is calling you to it embodies love and is love. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we yearn to have every moment of our lives dependent, relying completely on your love. Lord, we need to understand your love better. Some of us need to be convinced of your love more. Some of us need to stop listening to the other voices in our head. so that we can hear your still, small voice saying, I love you. Lord, I pray for your blessing and your anointing on this series. Take us where you want us to go. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day. God loves you.